You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. One in three Americans. That's the fraction that doesn't accept the theory of evolution. That, according to a recent poll, 33% of Americans believe that humans and other living things have existed in their present form since the beginning of time. So, a century and a half after Darwin published On the Origin of Species, and nearly 90 years after the Scopes trial, this issue has not gone away. In fact, a television station in Oklahoma edited out a brief reference to evolution in the reboot of the series Cosmos. This is Carl Sagan's science saga about the 14-billion-year-old life of our universe, now hosted by the astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson. In the uncut version, Neil Tyson sketched for viewers a complete history of our universe, but he scaled it down to one calendar year. For example, the dinosaurs, they appear the last week in this cosmic year. And as for humans... We are newcomers to the cosmos. Our own story only begins on the last night of the cosmic year. It's 9.45 on New Year's Eve. Three and a half million years ago, our ancestors, yours and mine, left these traces. We stood up and parted ways from them. Once we were standing on two feet, our eyes were no longer fixated on the ground. So he's talking about how humans are newcomers on the scene. We've only been around since 9.45 p.m. on New Year's Eve. And that was three and a half million years ago. Neil then goes on to describe how we evolved to being upright and so on. Now, here's how that played out in Oklahoma City. Listen for what happens after Neil says 9.45 on New Year's Eve. It's 9.45 on New Year's Eve. Coming up tonight at 9, the new evidence showing our biggest earthquake could have been man-made. A sudden break to promo the upcoming news. So that mention of humans becoming upright and walking is gone. Now, the Oklahoma station said that the edit was a mistake. Whether it was or not, evolution is a contentious issue, and creationists have demanded equal time on the Cosmos series, as they have in schools where evolution is taught. This battle continues, and perhaps it always will. But evolution is not a process that only took place a long, long time ago or that unfolds at a glacial pace or or even only about our human origins. Evolution is happening now. It's happening quickly, and understanding it has real-world applications. Anyone who's had the flu or a nasty bacterial infection is testament to that. The speed at which bacteria and viruses can evolve is challenging our best medical researchers. It's an evolutionary arms race, but by understanding the processes involved, we can hope to stay ahead of these malevolent microbes. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and in this hour of Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science, why understanding evolution is essential to your health. Those Americans who don't accept the theory of evolution, and that's one-third of the populace, according to the Pew Research Center poll taken at the end of 2013, believe that humans and other living things have existed in their present form since the beginning of time. That rejects the idea of genetic change over time. In other words, the idea that we pass an imperfect copy of our genes onto our children and they onto theirs and so on and so on. Much like the children's game of telephone, small changes can lead to a completely novel result. 
The point is, this process can make new species out of old ones, species that are better adapted to a particular environment. But the one in three Americans who don't accept this fundamental principle of evolution might raise an eyebrow at the work of this geneticist. Okay, so my name is Svante Pebel. I work in Leipzig, Germany, and I'm a geneticist with a special interest in human history and origins. Svante Pabo has more than an interest in human history. I have an interest in human history, but he's been able to shine a bright light in areas of dark foliage in our evolutionary tree. His research on the DNA of human and non-human primates at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology allowed his team to identify the key genetic changes that transformed our hirsute primate ancestors into slightly less hirsute Homo sapiens. His team developed a technique of isolating and sequencing fragile ancient DNA. Then it sequenced the genome of our closest evolutionary relative. And no, not monkeys, but then it never was the monkeys. That's long been an erroneous interpretation of Darwin's theory. This relative that his team focused on is far closer to us, the Neanderthal. Dr. Pabo's work has shown that Neanderthal DNA is tucked deep within our genomes because a large percentage of humans have been given an inheritance by the Neanderthal. In the course of his work, Dr. Pabo and his team learned that our caveman relatives, who disappeared about 30,000 years ago, those Neanderthals mated with modern humans, but then their species died out. Now, if you don't accept the theory of evolution, well then, Dr. Pabo's study of DNA and the story it tells may not be a grabber. But if you begin with the understanding that DNA changes over time, then his work opens up new worlds. For Dr. Pabo, that journey began near the Nile. Svante, you've studied Neanderthals for three decades now. You've written a book about Neanderthals. And yet, in some ways, this story doesn't start in Europe, where the Neanderthals most famously lived, but in Egypt. You were studying mummies. What can mummies tell us about ancient DNA? Well, the reason I started with mummies was really that I had imagined I would become an Egyptologist as a kid, and I've even studied Egyptology at the university. So when I started working in molecular biology as a graduate student and wanted to look for DNA in old tissues, Egyptian mummies was obviously the first thing I thought about. They look very well preserved, so I thought maybe DNA is preserved in them. I think that a lot of people figure that you just go in there and you scrape off a bit of a fingernail or whatever from one of these mummies and, I don't know, you put it into a machine and out comes a DNA sequence. It's not that easy, is it? No, and actually back then in the early 80s, most people believed that DNA would be degraded and gone when you died within hours or at least days after death. So I actually started out with just buying a piece of calf liver in the supermarket and drying it in the lab and then showed that DNA could survive in that for days and weeks after death. And then I got to Egyptian mummies and started working with them. And it was actually very frustrating. Most mummies contain no preserved DNA whatsoever. I had to look through many mummies before finding the first exceptions to that. Eventually you were able to do this. You were able to extract and analyze some of this mummy DNA that presumably gave you the techniques necessary to work with even older DNA, and that's Neanderthals. I mean, you know, that's, what, 10 times older, right? Uh, Why did you want to do that? When people ask you, sitting next to you at dinner, why the heck did you want to sequence the genome of this species, if that's what it is, that's long gone? What do you tell them? Well, so Neanderthals are our very closest evolutionary relatives that are extinct. So if you want to find out what's unique to modern humans, what sort of defines us from a genetic point of view relative to all other groups of hominins and apes that occur on on the planet, you have to compare us to our closest relatives, the Neanderthals. The Neanderthals, correct me if I'm wrong, lived from, uh, what, about 300,000 years ago to 30,000 years ago. That means these guys had a very long run. I mean, that's longer than Homo sapiens has been around, isn't it? Yes, so they have been around around three times longer on this planet than we have so far. Let's see how long we will be going. (laughs) Well, you you found that, uh, you know, humans and the Neanderthals did differ in their genome. Obviously, we have the genome for for humans, so you could compare them. 
but this also supported the suggestion that uh, it wasn't always hands-off when uh, Homo sapiens met the mm-hmm. Neanderthals 50, 100,000 years ago. No. So what we found out was that modern humans had replaced Neanderthals. They're obviously gone, but not totally. One had had babies together, and some of those babies became incorporated in a modern human society and ended up contributing genetically to people today, to the extent that around 1% or up to 2% of the DNA in people who come from Europe and Asia actually is derived from the Neanderthals. So if you like, they live on a little bit in some of us today. So a few percent of my genome is actually Neanderthal genome. Now, yes. Well, well, if I ask, okay, so a certain percentage of my genome, but not you know, zero percentage, I mean, one, two percent is quite a bit, actually, uh, is DNA from my Neanderthal experience from 50,000 years ago, whatever. Uh, has that led to any specific and obvious characteristics that uh, I could point to somebody and say, you know, the fact that you have red hair or something like that mm-hmm. is, you know, that's because of our uh, experience with the Neanderthals or not? Well, so I think in the future, one will know much, much more about this. The things we can say today is that those variants of genes that have come from Neanderthals and risen to rather high frequencies, so rather many people carry them today, are particular genes that have, are expressed in the skin. Keratins, for example, that are involved in the texture of the skin and the hair. There are also some other variants from Neanderthals that have other consequences. There was a study in December already that had showed that a risk gene for type 2 diabetes, so the type of diabetes you often get in old age, and this risk variant are particularly prevalent in Native Americans and Asians, that this risk variant comes from Neanderthals. So presumably that was some variant that came over from Neanderthals that probably actually had some positive effect on people in a situation of starvation. But in our societies now where we have abundant nutrition, it actually results in type 2 diabetes. Why is it so controversial, do you think, to posit that we interbred with Neanderthals? Because this does rile some people up. Well, I think in the scientific community, among paleontologists who study old fossils, there had been a debate over 30 years about what happened when modern humans met Neanderthals. Did one mix or not? And those two camps were actually fighting each other quite vigorously. Now, our results sort of shows that the answer is somewhere in between what those two sides were believing. So I think it's actually not that controversial anymore. I think it's sort of everyone is pretty happy with this outcome. If people ask you, how does this affect our humanity? The question that I hear a lot, and I'm not quite even sure what the question means, but what bearing does this have on what makes us human? What, what answer do you give to that? Well, in some sense, I would say that from a genetic perspective, having the Neanderthal genome, it allows us to say what genetically defines us as fully modern humans, a genetic recipe for being a present-day human. Because we can now, having thousands of genomes of people who live today, compare to the Neanderthal genome and say, what genetic changes do we all have in common, no matter where we live on the planet, yet the Neanderthals at those positions in the genome look like the chimpanzees and other apes. And we have that list now. It is just approximately 31,000 changes. So there are not that many in a genome of 3 billion bases. You can look through them in a computer in an afternoon. Svante, as you know, 30% of Americans don't accept the theory of evolution. How important is understanding evolution to the work you're doing with ancient DNA? I mean, is there any way to explain your results without biological evolution? No, I don't think there is. I mean, it's the only sort of model that explains what we see. So, for example, we, in a sense, catch evolution red-handed with our ancient genomes. We can see, for example, 
if we sequence a genome of a human that's 40,000 years old, that it lacks mutations, that the number of mutations on the lineage to that individual is less than to me today, because it died 40,000 years ago, so less mutations has, has happened in its ancestors. Your work also took an unexpected turn when you got some DNA from, what, the finger of a bone uncovered in the Denisova cave on the Siberian steppes. Uh, what, would you, what did you find there? It was just a little bit of bone given to you, I believe, by a Russian scientist. Yes, we worked together with Russian colleagues that in 2008 found this tiny little fragment of the last phalanx of a pinky of a child. And I was convinced that this would be either a Neanderthal or a modern human. But when we started sequencing the genome, we to our surprise found that it was neither. It, this individual came from a population that had a common origin with Neanderthals, but far, far back, maybe at least 200,000 years or so back in history. So this was a new group of extinct humans, and it was the first time that one actually described a new group of extinct humans not based on morphology of fo fossilized bones or stone tools, but on a genome sequence. And we called them then Denisovans, after Denisova Cave, where they were found in southern Siberia. So you've used genetic techniques to find another hominin line. Yes. And we could then, of course, ask for this group of hominins, the Denisovans, the same thing as for the Neanderthals. Have they contributed to people today, genetically? And to our surprise, we found that they had, but not in Central Asia or Siberia, but in the Pacific. So people that live today in Papua New Guinea, Aboriginal Australians in Fiji, Maoris in New Zealand, have some of them quite a big contribution, up to 5% from these Denisovans. So they have obviously been more widespread in the past. Wow, it seems like there were a lot of hominins. I mean, we got the Neanderthals, we got the Denisovans, and so forth. Uh, presumably, there, there could be still some lines, I don't know if you'd call them species, but that we still haven't found that are close to us in the same way that, I don't know, very naively, all the monkeys and apes are similar to one another. Yes, I think if we sort of say what hominin groups were there, say, 50,000 years ago when modern humans started spreading across the world. We know about the Neanderthals, about the Denisovans now. We know there were these hobbits, these Homo floresiensis in Indonesia. And I'm sure that when one in the future will get more genomes from other old bones, one will probably find other groups like that. Svante Pabo, thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Svante Pabo is an evolutionary geneticist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. His team sequenced the Neanderthal genome, and he's the author of Neanderthal Man, In Search of Lost Genomes. Okay, so as he said, comparing the DNA of contemporary humans, us, and Neanderthals, we can learn a lot of fascinating stuff about human history. And, you know, this is not recent history. This is history that goes back 50,000 years or so. And to find it fascinating, you do have to accept the basic science behind it, that of genetics, biology, chemistry, and anthropology, and you have to accept the process of evolution. And if you choose not to accept it, I mean, the consequences are far more than just having this insight into our very interesting ancient history. It's also about your health. Up next, the evolutionary process that brought you Neanderthals and Homo sapiens also brings you this. <coughs> Find out how the deadly 1918 flu virus is still relevant today. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check. This episode, Evolutionary Arms Race. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
Fonte Pabo gathers evidence from the past, bones and tissues, that he then analyzes in his lab and tries to figure out a scenario that took place over millennia in the deep, dark forests of Europe. But that means we have to take his word for it. I mean, he's a nice enough guy, after all. We enjoyed talking to him. But when he and other scientists present evidence of what happened long, long ago, we have to trust their interpretation of the facts. Dr. Papo, after all, wasn't there to watch evolution unfold in our ancestral world. And that lack of first-hand experience has been a kind of a sticking point for some who are going to question whether humans could be related to Neanderthals or to apes or to other primates. But evolution works at different paces. Yes, it can take millennia, but in some organisms, it unfolds quickly over weeks, including that questionable bit of biology, the virus. And this has implications for our health today. The new executive director at the National Center for Science Education is Anne Reed. This Oakland-based organization works to ensure that schools have the resources to teach evolution. And the results from the Pew Research Center poll that we mentioned earlier don't surprise her. That number has remained stubbornly consistent, that about a third of Americans say that they don't believe in evolution. But before she became director, Dr. Reed was a research scientist with the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. And so evolution was directly relevant to her work. My scientific work was all done at the level of DNA and RNA, the chemicals that encode information that allow uh, different organisms to develop and reproduce. And at the DNA and RNA level, the evidence for evolution is absolutely incontrovertible. It's, it's actually quite beautiful the way it plays out at the genomic level. So a virus, for example, is extraordinarily adaptive, and that may be beautiful, but sometimes the results are ugly. Anne Reed, along with the virologist Jeffrey Taubenberger, was responsible for sequencing the genome of the virus that gave rise to the 1918 flu, also known as the Spanish flu. This tiny bit of RNA caused one of the deadliest epidemics in history. It killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide. Understanding why it was so deadly may help us deal with flu viruses today. Which of them are merely annoyances? Which are massively lethal? The swine flu of 2009 was relatively mild compared to the 1918 Spanish flu, but because it had spread worldwide, it was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization, and it was the second outbreak of an H1N1 flu. The first was 1918. So there are different varieties of flu, and as Anne Reed knows, that's where evolution comes in. Viruses evolve like crazy. Viruses are little evolving machines. And when we went looking for the 1918 influenza virus, we didn't know what its RNA sequence would be. But we know that influenza viruses change, evolve very rapidly. And the reason is that they need to evade the human immune system. And the human immune system is quite an efficient evolutionary product itself. So that the viruses, um, when you've been infected by an influenza virus, your body makes antibodies that can identify and latch onto that virus the next time you encounter it and prevent it from infecting your cells. And so you can only be infected by a particular influenza virus once. That the virus reproduces itself inside your cells billions and billions of times. And every single time it makes a new copy of itself, it makes a mutation. So those mutations are happening by chance. They're random mutations. The virus isn't purposely trying to evade your or outwit your immune system. That's that's exactly right. And, and it's so easy to anthropomorphize and say the virus is trying to Get, make you sick. It, it's not. You're absolutely right. Its reproductive machinery is extremely inaccurate, and that's on purpose because the viruses can survive just fine if 999,999 copies are completely dysfunctional so long as one evades the next person's immune system. The 1918 flu was one of the deadliest epidemics in history. 50 million people were killed, at least was part of the reason of your sequencing that, that virus, that genome, was to understand what made it so deadly? That's exactly right. Um, we had two reasons that we wanted to find the sequence to that virus. One was to see why it was so lethal, and the other was to try to figure out where it came from. Because influenza viruses are 
very widespread in nature. Their host reservoir seems to be wild birds, ducks and geese in particular. There are many, many different strains of influenza virus in the wild, and they don't make these wild birds sick. The birds carry them without any apparent symptoms. And every once in a while, these bird viruses seem to be able to cross over into mammalian hosts. And it was assumed that that's what had happened in 1918, but it had never been demonstrated. How did you get a hold of the virus? Because the at some point, the 1918 flu, the Spanish flu, burned out. But yet you got a hold of it and one that was viable so that you could sequence it. Where did you get it? We had two sources, actually. The first source was the archives of the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, which has been um, collecting samples since the Civil War, actually. I don't know if your listeners would have seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but the AFIP's archives are kind of like that last scene uh, with a big warehouse full of boxes, except in this case, the boxes are about the size of your upper thumb joint. And they contain tiny little slivers of tissue that have been preserved in formaldehyde and then embedded in wax. And I hope they're well labeled because what was alarming about that last scene (laughs) was the feeling that you would never find anything in that big warehouse. Yes, they are very well labeled and cataloged. And in fact, we were fortunate that they had been, that records had been computerized starting with 1917. So we were able to search the catalog and find examples of tissues that had been taken from people who died of the 1918 flu. Now, a virus is a pretty simple organism just its genetic level. It's just a few genes, I understand, whereas humans are 20,000 genes, maybe not as many genes as we were hoping yeah. <laughs> we but would it's have. 3 billion bases, whereas the 1918 flu had about 15,000. It doesn't just come down to the numbers, but it is a simple organism in some ways, and yet it can be very deadly. So do we know why that flu was so so deadly? Did it come down to just one gene or just a couple genes? So influenza virus has two proteins that are particularly important from the human point of view. They're called hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. These okay, so that's the that's the H and the N when exactly. we hear about the H one, N one and so forth. Exactly. And those are the those are the proteins that stick up on the surface of the virus. The hemagglutinin is the protein that allows the virus to latch onto a cell. And the neuraminidase is the protein that has to be clipped off for the virus to then go on and infect other cells. So those, they're both on the surface of the virus, and because they're on the surface, those are the proteins that the immune system sees. And so those are the proteins where changes in the genetic code are rewarded by evolution with a virus that survives. You know, we hear about these, these flus, the H1N1, which was the swine flu that hit pretty hard in, in 2009, and then there's the H5N1. So they both have N1, but one is an H1 and one is an H5. Are those the key changes that you're looking for? From the human point of view, we care a lot about what the the hemagglutinin and neuraminidase subtypes are because, again, those are what the immune system is recognizing. So in wild birds, there are lots of subtypes. There are, I think, something around 15 hemagglutinin subtypes found in nature and about uh, 9 or 10 neuraminidase subtypes. Only a few have ever made it into people. And we knew that the 1918 flu was an h one N1. Okay, so the H1N1 is a classification of a, of a flu virus. Yes. And, and you said that the 1918 flu was an H1N1, and yet we have an H1N1 that was circulating just a few years ago, but that doesn't mean that the Spanish flu came back. No, it doesn't. So H1N1's descendants of the 1918 flu have been circulating in pigs since 1918. And that, that H1N1 is the one that then came back into people. And you you just mentioned pigs. So pigs are another host for this virus. It's exactly. not just birds. And so it really is, as you describe this, it sounds purposeful, but again, it's not purposeful on the part of the virus. Humans are exposed to ducks and other fowl, and so their germs are going to get onto us. And it sounds as though a human is going to be exposed to the virus many times, and sometimes it will never infect them. And then maybe one time or a number of times, it crosses over because the virus is constantly mutating and mutating. It's like spinning spinning the wheel of a combination mm. lock. And then it, it somehow, it comes up with a, not purposefully, but it comes up with a sequence that allows it to survive in a human. And it sounds like that's what happened with the 1918 flu. And then it made the jump to go from human to human. And that's when things become quite deadly. 
Exactly. And what we still don't know, though, is how 1918 did that. And the fact that we don't know that means that we still have to be respectful of these viruses like H5N1 that make the jump in this very limited way into humans. And But the point is, is that viruses are among us and the flu virus is everywhere. I mean, there are many variations of it. And it is it true that if you've ever contracted the flu, you've probably contracted a mutation of the Spanish flu from 1918? Well, it's the situation is quite complicated now with the flu because there are several strains that are circulating together. There's uh, the H1N1, and there's also the H3N2, which has been the dominant uh, virus since 1968. So you've probably been exposed to both of them. But even the, the H1N1 that circulates and the H3N2 that circulates change every year, and that's why you have to have your flu shot every year, and because they monitor the changes that are occurring and they adjust the vaccine so that it will be a, the best match they can figure out to the strain that's coming. So, so it sounds like we need to be vigilant. Um, it's important to get our flu shots to protect against the seasonal variety. But if we look at an example of like the, the H5N1 flu that has been circulating in uh, birds, I understand, some scientists have said that it's just a few mutations away from becoming a pandemic. That sounds alarmist. Is it accurate? And, and what can we do about it? Well, first, I'd say that it is occasionally going from a bird into a human and, and causing illness in that human. The evidence that it can go from human to human is extremely small. The idea that it's a mutation or two away from being able to transmit from human to human is possibly true, but that doesn't mean that Again, the virus is busily trying every combination until it can do that. I would argue that the fact that it has not been able to do that, I think, is a sign that our surveillance is extremely good and not a sign that this virus is getting closer and closer to being able to circulate. That being said, we don't know how pandemics start. What we do know is that there have been pandemics every 20 or 30 years for a long, long time. And so the smart money is on this could happen again, and this is likely to happen again. And so we need to be vigilant about surveillance for new types, and we need to be constantly working on how can we produce a really good vaccine really fast, because that's how we'll stop the next pandemic. Anne Reed, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Anne Reed is the executive director of the National Center for Science Education based in Oakland, California. She's also a molecular biologist and responsible for helping to sequence the 1918 flu genome. Coming up, flu viruses are not the only organisms that are quick to adapt and that can land you in the hospital. Microbiologist Martin Blazer on the emerging health crisis of antibiotic resistance and its surprising impact on your body's good bacteria. It's Skeptic Check, Evolutionary Arms Race on Big Picture Science. Welcome back to our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check. And in this episode, we're examining the process of evolution. And it's not the theory that's under our microscope, but the belief, which according to a recent poll shows that one in every three Americans rejects, that evolution actually occurs. And that choice can have consequences on your health, as we've heard. And so what's under the microscope matters. And it's not just viruses. Because bacteria evolve so quickly, Antibiotics are losing their punch. Martin Blazer is a microbiologist at New York University School of Medicine. He heads up efforts to sequence the human microbiome. He also researched a nasty bacterium called H. pylori that's been linked to gastric cancer. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the author of Missing Microbes, How the Overuse of Antibiotics is Fueling Our Modern Plagues. Martin, modern plagues is a pretty strong phrase to use. What are examples of modern plagues? Modern plagues is a strong phrase, but I think it is a true phrase because we have had dramatic rises in a number of very important and difficult illnesses like obesity or 
type 2 diabetes, adult onset diabetes, or juvenile diabetes, which is doubling every 20 years in developed countries, or asthma. Is this a new way to think about disease, that some of these modern diseases are caused by bacteria? About 10 years ago, uh, I began to think that maybe some of the modern diseases are caused by a change in the ancient organisms that live in us. And over the years, we've been doing experiments to study this. And uh, the, the underpinnings of the hypothesis is that ever since there have been animals on this planet, uh, animals have had microbes living in them, our resonant microbes, what we call our microbiome. And the fact that our microbes have certain similarities to the microbes of mice and monkeys and dolphins tells us that we've co-evolved with them. And co-evolution suggests that there's some benefit for us. And my big hypothesis is that over the 20th century, we've changed these ancient relationships and that some of the microbes are in fact disappearing. And as a result of this disappearance, our physiology has changed, and thus our risk for disease. And, and just to underscore how important microbes are to us, I mean, if you, if you were to weigh the amount of me that was human cell, that was Molly, um, and the amount that was microbe, the microbes would win out. Well, um, by weight, uh, Molly wins out. But by number, microbes win out, because uh, <laughs> the microbial cells on an average are a lot smaller. So the current estimate is that 70 to 90 percent of all the cells in Molly's body are microbial, bacterial or fungal, and the minority are the cells that you call your own. So it sounds as though the bacteria have evolved to be agents of good health within us as well as sickness. And let's just look at sickness for a moment because bacteria can kill. And if we look at the role of antibiotics and what antibiotics have done for our world, our society, it's hard to imagine, at least for some people, a world before them, a world before penicillin, when even a simple infection could kill you. Absolutely. Antibiotics are miraculous. Uh, my specialty in medicine is infectious diseases. The kinds of lethal infections in the past could begin with a child getting a splinter and that becoming infected and they get uh, what's called cellulitis, a very severe infection of their extremity. Sometimes the only cure was amputation. Of course, infections were a major cause of death in soldiers during wartime. Okay, so antibiotics come along, they change our world radically, and now we use them so broadly that they're actually becoming less effective, and this is a a global health crisis that we're either entering if we're not in the midst of. And part of this is due to the nature of the bacteria themselves and how quickly they reproduce. They can adapt very quickly. How does that change the effectiveness of antibiotics? As a doctor and a biologist, uh, my viewpoint of nature is based on the ideas and knowledge provided by Charles Darwin. Uh, and that is that the central principle in biology is natural selection, survival of the fittest. And studying antibiotics and bacteria is a perfect example of that. Because if I give an antibiotic to a patient, that antibiotic will inhibit or kill all the susceptible bacteria there. But in that natural population, there will be organisms present that are intrinsically resistant to the antibiotic, and those will grow up, and those will come to dominate the population. And if the next time we give an antibiotic uh, with the same activity, and those resistant organisms are there, that antibiotic isn't going to work anymore. And this kind of scenario has kind of played out around the world and, in fact, is increasing. The more we use antibiotics, the more we select for resistant organisms. There's a dual harm that you write about, and one is that we're creating an environment where bacteria are becoming resistant to antibiotics, but we're also killing off our good biome, the good microbes that you said evolved with us to help us digest and fight off infection and so forth. I wonder if you could say a bit more about the role of those good microbes, what they're doing for us, and what happens when we take a course of antibiotics. Well, thank you for your, your wonderful questions, Molly. I want to I want to address several points. The first point is that because antibiotics have been so miraculous as a society, we've given them a free ride for the last 60 years. Nobody really considered the question 
could there be long-term consequences from antibiotic use? And in fact, once you pose that question, the answer becomes somewhat obvious because it's hard to imagine agents as powerful as antibiotics are not having long-term consequences, not perturbing our normal good bacteria. And in fact, that's exactly what we have found. Now, we know that our good bacteria do many things for us. They help us in our digestion. They make vitamins for us. They help protect against invading organisms. In a big outbreak of salmonella infections in Chicago linked to drinking contaminated milk, people who had received antibiotics in the previous months were many times more likely to develop the infection and illness than people who had not been on antibiotics. And that's consistent with a wide body of work that our normal bacteria are helping us fight against invaders. The homeboys are, are protecting their turf. And that's a very important benefit. And uh, the more we use antibiotics, the more we're curtailing that benefit. So are microbes a part of our immune system? Would you classify them as part of our immune system? I would. Uh, I think uh, the evidence is becoming more and more clear that a healthy microbial composition is part of our immunity. Martin, you've studied H. pylori. Um, this is the bacteria that causes ulcers and even stomach cancer. Now, that sounds like a bacterium that we'd like to wipe out. Well, H. pylori was, was first discovered in the 19th century by German scientists who saw the organism in the stomach. Uh, it was present in everybody. They couldn't isolate them, so they ignored it, and ultimately they forgot it. In the 1970s, two scientists in Australia, Robin Warren and Barry Marshall, saw the organisms again in the stomach. But this time, they only saw it in about half the people. The reason is it already disappeared from half. And they made the association that the people who had this organism were at much higher risk for stomach ulcers. And they showed that if you treat patients to get rid of this organism, ulcers get better. And this was remarkable. And it changed the course of medicine. They won the Nobel Prize. Everything suggested that helicobacter is a pathogen. It's a bad organism. We want to get rid of it. But as I was studying it, it seemed to me that the story was a little more complicated than that. And the more I studied it, the more clear it became that this is one of the normal members of our microbiota, an organism that's been with us for untold millennium. There are genetic studies now suggesting it's been present since the dawn of Homo sapiens more than 200,000 years ago present with very low risk of disease. So it was discovered as a pathogen, but the more we studied it, it seemed normal. And then we asked the question, well, what happens if you look at people who don't have the organism? Are they at increased risk for other diseases? And we found the answer was yes. People who didn't have the organism were at increased risk for esophageal reflux. And that's a very common problem that's been going up in recent years. And that also leads to its own form of cancer of the esophagus and the upper stomach. So it's bad to have helicobacter. It's bad not to have helicobacter. We can't win. Helicobacter pylori is an example of our complex relationship with the microbes that we carry. Well, then finally, Martin, what do we do at this crossroads? I mean, we should all be very careful about taking antibiotics, but there are times when we need to take antibiotics because we have an illness that demands it. So what is, yeah. the, course, what is the course of action? Antibiotics are a very valuable part of our medical armamentarium. In fact, they're the cornerstone of most aspects of medicine. We couldn't have chemotherapy for cancer unless we had a safety net of antibiotics. We couldn't do a lot of surgeries or transplantation. But in Sweden, they're using less than half the antibiotics we're using. If you look at every age, they're using about 40% the level of antibiotics we're using. So that immediately suggests that 60% of the antibiotics that we're using are not necessary. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is to try to educate the profession and the public that antibiotics have cost, they're not free, and that we have to use them much more judiciously. And we can't say, well, they, they, they may not help you, but they won't hurt. They might hurt. This is the kind of thing that people should be discussing with their doctors and asking, Doc, do I really need the antibiotic this time? Martin Blazer, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Martin Blazer is a microbiologist at New York University School of Medicine. He's been president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and he's a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Blazer is author of 
Missing Microbes, How the Overuse of Antibiotics is Fueling Our Modern Plagues. And a reminder that antibiotics are used against bacteria, not viruses, so don't take them for those critters. Even though you will be tempted. Every time you get sick, you think, oh, I'll just take some antibiotics, and your doctor may agree with you. That's right. That's why it's so scary, because people are doing that, and the fear is that now we're going to lose, or we may be losing this evolutionary arms race with the bacteria. Yeah, but maybe understanding how evolution works may give us weapons to fight back. I persist in my hope that it will turn out that humans are smarter than bacteria. Well, that is the hope of Gautam Dantas. He's an assistant professor of pathology at Washington University in St. Louis. First of all, we found and others have found that antibiotic resistance is an ancient feature. So it existed in bacteria as a property well before we came on the scene, before we used drugs. And a big reason for this is because most of the drugs that were found in that 40s to 60s period were actually natural products. They were made by bacteria that live in the soil, have probably been made there in the soil for millions to billions of years. And since those capacities have existed for production of antibiotics in the environment, so has resistance for that same period of time. Well, when you say that they had uh, antibiotics before we developed antibiotics, I, I guess penicillin, I mean, that's bread mold, really. So that pre predates anything that we've done in the lab. So presumably that existed in nature. You're saying there's a part of the genome of these bacteria that's some sort of engine that allows them to fight off some agent that otherwise might kill them, an antibiotic, whether it's natural or developed by humans? That's exactly right. And again, so when we get to this consideration of these drugs being made in the clinic, some of them are drugs that simply we've trained natural bacteria to produce lots of a quantity of a particular chemical that we call an antibiotic because it can kill other bacteria. For that class of chemicals, for sure, there's all of the pressure available through natural selection, through evolution, for resistance genes to exist. But even those drugs that we uh, see a synthetic chemist might make anew in the lab, those chemicals have substructures, parts of those chemicals that have been seen in the environment. And so even for those apparently wonder new drugs, there are mechanisms that these bacteria have that can break down or evade those particular properties. You know, I'm kind of interested in how this actually works, how an antibiotic works. I mean, just at a, you know, sort of a mechanical level, what does a bacterium physically do to fight off an antibiotic? I mean, is the antibiotic just punching holes in it or what? I mean, how does it actually kill kill the bacterium? Sure. So the, the way these particular weapons against bacteria work is, for instance, by punching holes, as you said. Probably the central theme in terms of why they work is the antibiotics target some of the most important parts of bacterial life. So it's either the, the cell membrane or the cell envelope. This is what keeps the bacterium intact. So it would be effectively like poking holes in our skin. And so we would effectively leak out. So that's a major mechanism. So penicillin, that's how it works, this first wonder drug. And then the other processes that are hit by antibiotics are critical parts, for instance, of duplicating the genome. So this is replicating DNA or creating proteins or allow the, allowing bacteria to digest various food and convert them into energy to utilize. And so it really is, if you could imagine any central process for a bacterium to live, an antibiotic is successful is if it hits one of those key processes such that if it gets knocked out, the bacterium can't live or at least replicate anymore. So I take it this new approach that you're pushing is to understand this genetic resistance that uh, so many bacteria apparently have, how it works, how it spreads, and target that. In, in, in other words, instead of endlessly beating back their latest defenses, uh, you're going to attack their defense department, as it were. That's exactly right. And I'd say uh, it's a combination of attacking the defense, but also understanding it before we deploy the drug. So, for instance, we know that, you know, there are lots and lots of different types of drugs that we could use in the clinic, but there's a, there's a time component with treating a disease. Someone comes in and they have a massive bloodstream infection. We don't have the luxury of going down the laundry list one at a time to treat each drug. We want to know as quickly as possible what's the bacterium, what is it resistant to, and then 
uh, use orthogonal different drugs to be able to treat it. So, so not only are we interested in the long-term idea of developing new drugs that might go after resistance mechanisms, but also to help with diagnoses right now, to enable a clinician, to enable a doctor to very rapidly know, okay, this particular bug is resistant to antibiotics A, B, and C, but not to E, F, and G. And so what levels of E, F, and G can I use to quickly treat the infection? So finally then, Gautam, what I think I'm hearing is that not only is evolution a fact of life, as it were, it's it's a very powerful fact of life. It moves quickly. We can't stop it. All we can do is to continue to fight back and keep more people out of the hospital. Absolutely. I think that's that's exactly right. I think first our embracing of principles of evolution uh, and, and continue to understand how it works is the first step towards fighting any such disease. And I think obviously we work on, on infectious disease, but we understand that evolution is a, is a key factor in how cancer comes up or, or really anything that impacts uh, human health. And so, yes, absolutely. I think in our, our hope to, to, to lead healthier, longer lives requires our, our better understanding of evolution. Gautam Dantas, thank you so very much for talking with us. Pleasure. Gautam Dantas is a pathologist and immunologist at the Center for Genome Science and Systems Biology at Washington University in St. Louis. And you can read more about his work fighting antibacterial resistance in the January-February issue of American Scientist. It's the cover story. Well, we got into this show with the fact that one-third of Americans have their doubts about evolution. That's right. But it doesn't only give us really interesting information about the history of our species. It has applications today. Every one of the medical researchers we talked to explained to us how evolution was the essential underpinning of their research. Well, there's no question that our production team is highly evolved. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Thank you to both of them. And also thank you to Google and Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check Evolutionary Arms Race. Skeptic Check is our monthly look at critical thinking from Big Picture Science. And there's more of Skeptic Check and other BiPiSci episodes on iTunes and through the link on our website. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, it's less likely to be infectious, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like this show. But, but actually, the goal is to have radio that is infectious, isn't it? Yeah, but it shouldn't make you sick. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.